You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Excited for this opportunity for us to be together, having sung, prayed, read, and now our time in the Word together, thinking about how the Bible can be mysterious to many people who just do not know it. You might feel that way. There are many things in life that can feel mysterious, things that we just do not understand. Some of them are historical Some of them are scientific. The story of King Arthur is a legend that has been retold countless times, made into movies and endless stories and plots. Was it actually connected to anybody legitimately in history? What about Jimmy Hoffa? Where is that man's body? Teamsters, union captain, that has gone missing and to this day holds a mystery for many where he went. How did he die? Who truly commissioned the Georgia Guidestones, which is essentially America's version of Stonehenge? Who commissioned them? There was a mysterious name of a person who paid for them. The company who had them made thought it was just a joke and therefore they didn't think it was anything legitimate and yet it stands today. What happened with all the planes and the boats during the Bermuda Triangle? The triangulation of what happened. What what took place there between that section from the island of Bermuda and Puerto Rico and Miami, this area in which so many ships and boats have disappeared? Where did they all go? One such mystery today that still stands today as a mystery is in France. It's called Fosse Dion. In the heart of France's idyllic Burgundy region, Surrounded by manicured vineyards and a fortified Renaissance chateau, medieval town sits one of the most mysterious attractions today. A bottomless spring fed in a small town, and it's called Faustion. It has 82 gallons of water flowing out of it every second. During its rainy season, it has eight gallons of water that come out every second. And here's the thing. No one knows where it comes from. No one can trace its source, but it seemingly is never-ending. They've tried many times. Since the 70s, scuba divers have gone down to try to discover where it comes from. Most of the scuba divers actually died in trying to find out. In fact, for many years, it was illegal to dive there. It's been a mystery for thousands of years. The Romans used the spring for drinking water. The Celts used it as considered to be sacred. The French enclosed it, its ever-changing turquoise blue and brown water pool in a circular stone rim and used it as an amphitheater in a public bathhouse in the 1700s. Recently, a couple of years ago, the mayor commissioned a professional scuba diver to explore it to see where he could, where he could learn it actually comes from. 
The diver descended more than 230 feet down and over 1,200 feet away from the source of where it came out in the sense of where it was flowing out of the ground but could never find its source. To this day, stands as a mystery. Never ending, always flowing. Friends, that's how many people view Christians. In light of the hope that can continually flow from their life. Where seemingly they can have seemingly the worst of news, the hardest of circumstances, the most difficult of days, the most challenging of trials, and yet endlessly hope can flow. And for many, it's a mystery. Where does that come from? Is it just a personality quirk that some people have and other people do not? Is it just those who have kind of given over to the power of positive thinking? Where does this hope flow from? Well, today I want to speak about this, and I hope that it'll be a, both a point of encouragement for those who are Christians here, and at least a point of explanation, if not curiosity, for those who are not. Because what we find today, in light of it being a significant day for us in the life of the church, is that we find that that hope is tied to a historical event of a historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, if you're new to Christianity and you are still kind of finding your bearings even here this morning, to recognize the reality of what's taking place What's taking place here on this Sunday is what's taking place here every Sunday, and not just here, but around the world and throughout time zones and different languages and cultures, and that is Christians gathering together on the first day of the week as it's known and is historically Sunday because it commemorates the historical reality of a historical event, of a historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who not only died, all die. But he did something radical on record. He came back to life, was not unconscious. He didn't come back to life spiritually. He came back to life physically. And it's because of that significant reality of his resurrection that we begin to see the source. Unlike Faustion, where we don't find the source, here for Christians today, we can find the source of that hope. I've titled today's message, An Empty Tomb, An Endless Fountain of Hope. My hope this morning is to be able to explain to everybody here, both Christians and non-Christians alike, why the resurrection can give us hope and how it does so. And friends, just to be clear, like that one fountain in Faustion that flows endlessly, that there's so much more that could be enjoyed, by no means will this morning will we tap the bottom of this well of truth, but nevertheless, some truth that we can grab a hold of. First of all, we learn the resurrection gives us hope in our Bibles. The resurrection gives us hope in our Bibles. Perhaps you are somebody who is religiously curious, or at least religiously educated, and you are aware that Christianity is not the only religion that claims to have sacred writings. 
So does the religion of Buddhism, so does the religion of Hinduism, so does the religion of Islam. And so some of you, perhaps as religious skeptics or just out of curiosity, would say, well, what makes the Bible so significant? And why does that have such a significant bearing on how I should live or how other people should live? Because friends, the significant reality is that the Bible is indeed unlike any other book. And this is proven not only as a piece of literature, not only as a piece of history, but also because of what it records in its history. The reality is that the Bible is not only validated historically, it's testified to personally by Jesus. Here's the truth about Christianity that many people want to dismiss at one point or another. The translations of the Bible we have today, most of you in this room, if you have a copy on your phone or perhaps in person, have it in English, others of you have it in Spanish, others of you have it in French, others of you have it perhaps in some other language, but nevertheless, the copies we have today are indeed accurate translations of the original writings. The authors of the Bible were not fooled or stupid. What they told us happened, it really happened. It's historically validated even from those who were not followers of Christianity. The miracles in the Bible cannot be ruled out in principle. Their plausibility far surpasses any other accounts of supernatural happenings. The most important miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus, is historically supported. Here's the thing. If Jesus rose from the grave then the Bible really is the word of God because of what Jesus said about it. Let's consider just one text this morning, Matthew 16, verse 21. I have it for you on the screen. For those of you who don't have Bibles, you can at least look up there and just kind of read along with me. Others of you are welcome to turn in your Bibles to see this. Matthew 16, it's a significant conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. We're going to be looking at a number of texts this morning. This is one of many of them. But in the context of Matthew 16, Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give different answers. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. Peter says, you're Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my father who is in heaven. And on the heels of this conversation comes a statement from Jesus. It says, from that time, or about Jesus, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus, long before his actual crucifixion, was talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. He had been speaking about it. He had been promising and teaching the significance of it. Jesus taught all kinds of world-changing truths. Some of you are familiar with them. Even if you've never read the Bible for yourself. Some of you know it as the golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's a profound truth that Jesus taught. But it's not just the world-changing truths that Jesus taught. He also did all kinds of mind-blowing miracles, healing the sick. But he also made some remarkable claims, one of which was that Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. Now, this might be lost in you if you're not familiar with the Bible, but this is a statement not of his humanity, as it might sound to the untrained ear. It's a statement of his deity because he knew that he was citing what Daniel and the prophet Daniel was talking about, one who would come in the likeness of men, but as the son of man 
from the ancient of days, God the Father, who would have the rightful place as God's Son. Jesus claimed he was deity. God was his Father. He had the authority over the Bible. He would fulfill the Bible. He lived. He he was crucified. Here's Here's the deal, friends. If what Jesus says about himself and what Jesus does is impressive, but maybe can be scientifically somehow altered and misinterpreted, the question is, if he did not rise from the grave, what do we do with him? Well, the reality is you should do what many do today. You should dismiss him. He could have had a good heart with the best of intentions, maybe done some impressive things that maybe got embellished over time throughout history from his followers that kind of, you know, kind of told the fishing story, kept getting bigger every time it got retold. But if he rose from the grave, if he appeared, then it changes everything. It would later say in Luke 24, after his resurrection, even the disciples did not initially believe themselves. His closest of followers did not believe he rose from the grave. Luke 24, Jesus appearing to them in the person says, go ahead, touch me. Put your hands in my side and actually ask for some food to eat. He was present with them just like them in the person. The reason this is significant to our point here is because it now means everything that Jesus said about this book validates it as actually being what it is. Why does a Christian trust the Bible? Listen as one author, Greg Gilbert, writes in Why Trust the Bible. He says this, because King Jesus... The resurrected endorsed the Old Testament and authorized the new. That's not a presupposition. That's not an unthinking, close your eyes and jump leap of faith. It's a considered conclusion built from the careful argument that the Bible is historically reliable. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and the whole of the Bible, therefore, rests on Jesus' authority. That's why we believe it. That's why we trust it. Secondly, as to how this fountain of hope flows from the resurrection, secondly, the resurrection gives us hope for our biggest problem. The resurrection gives us hope for our biggest problem. People have all kinds of assessments of our problems. Some people believe your greatest problem today is your identity suppression. The more you can get in touch with who you are based upon how you feel, based on how you identify, and the more you can live out that identity, unveiled, unhindered, unlimited, the more fulfilled you are, and the problem is most people are living under identity suppression. That's our biggest problem. You need to be the real you. Others believe our biggest problem is educational poverty. The reality that so many people just sit and live in society in ignorance. They need more education, more enlightened, that if they knew what they don't know, they would now become educated and illuminated and have a better understanding of their future. Others believe it's economic disparity. 
It's the fact that so many of us don't have, while so few of us do have, and there's a disparity between those two groups, and we need to make more equal distribution of those resources. It's unfair to the rest of us. Others believe that our biggest problem is government overreach. We need to smack the hand of the government that rules over us because it's reaching too far into our businesses, into our homes, into our schools, and the belief that if that can be addressed, our biggest problem will then be answered. Others, perhaps, our problem is that we don't have enough national identity. We're so worried about global issues, we need to take care of our own interior issues until we can start dealing with the homelessness on our streets, stop worrying about other people's problems in other countries. Other people can say the problem is not nationalism. The problem that we need to consider is actually is found in globalism. We should be more concerned about what's happening in the world. We're too self-focused, thinking of ourselves, are we going to do anything to help those who are struggling around the world or not? If, again, if the problem is economic disparity and we have blessing, why are we not using that blessing for others? Friends, the writings, the talks are endless. What is man's greatest problem? Well, it's actually quite more simpler to see and more profound to recognize. Our problem is not global, it's not educational, it's not economical, it's not relational, though it affects all of those. Our problem is personal and it's theological. We have rebelled against our creator. We have done this repeatedly according to our own conscience, which convicts us knowingly with great consequence, with great problem. We have rebelled against our creator, and this has created a problem that cannot be fixed no matter how much technology we introduce into society. So in summary, your problem and my problem is the same, no matter what backgrounds we come from. Three-letter word. Sin. Sin is the Bible's use of the term rebellion, disobedience against God. But the resurrection says that's not the end of the story. A profound text in Ephesians chapter 2 Paul describing this problem and the solution in Christ, after laying down the testimony of every Christian before they became Christians in verses one to three, he says in verses four to seven, listen as I read this to you, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, listen to this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's a biblical way of saying, even when we were sinful and just sort of blinded in our sin, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Let me just break this down for you kind of in modern day vernacular, just to be clear. For those of you who are here who are Christians versus those of you who are here who are not Christians, I wanna just get very clear. A Christian does not think they are better than a non-Christian. If they think that way, they think wrongly and unbiblically. 
What we see in the text of Scripture is what a Christian has confidence in is that their problem has been addressed, their problem of rebellion against God, because God has provided the solution for them in Christ. And they're no longer defined by that problem. They now have a new identity in Christ, and they now have, because of their faith in Christ, they now are now in him. And they want that same thing for you. They want you to have the same type of hope, the same type of problem that you all share to be addressed the same exact way. Jesus would say himself in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way for our problem to be addressed except through, the, except through faith in the crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses, but we've been made alive, and we're raised up with Christ. In his empty tomb, we have a fulfilled life. In Christ's empty tomb, we have a fulfilled life. Thirdly, the resurrection gives hope for reconciliation in our relationships. The resurrection gives hope for a reconciliation in relationships. Here's the reality. Whether or not you have peace with God does not mean you have peace with other people, perhaps even people here. I know the reality of how Easter works for many of us. Some of you are kindly and politely here as like a olive branch of relationship, an act of kindness to a friend or perhaps a relative. This is where they wanted me to be. So out of kindness to them, I will be here. But don't think just being in one service one time will can make my relationship with that person right. I recognize that. I recognize the reality that a lot of us live in light of our relationships are broken. Historically, presently, and perhaps yet still futuristically. And the question is, how does that connect to an empty tomb? How does it have any bearing on our life today? Uh, just last night, my wife and I were watching a video on intercontinental ballistic missiles. Am I romantic or what? Honey, it's time. It's time for the intercontinental ballistic missile video. She loves it when I pull that up. Now, we were watching it last night, just kind of intrigued, you know, true confession, like YouTube. There we are at a TV, like, oh, that's intriguing. I kind of want to know, are we going to die or not? And it was, the whole video was about whether or not you could actually, like, shoot down intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, spoiler alert, it doesn't look good. <laughs> doesn't look good. And this like, video was kind of unpacking all the different ways in which we, as the United States, have built technology to be able to protect us from those who want to kill us. Maybe. We're not sure if they want to or not, but we need to be prepared in case they want to. And it's like fascinating because like they're like, you know, the whole idea is there's this giant rocket, just to put this in layman's terms, which is definitely yours truly. Basically, you get a large rocket up in the space. Eventually that thing comes down towards the place it's headed. Before it lands, it opens up and releases a bunch of miniature nuclear bombs. 
Except the problem is they're not all nuclear. Some of them are decoys. So now you've got 15 of these things opening up, but only five of them are real and 10 of them are fake. And so the question is, wow, I don't have to shoot down one thing. I shoot down 15, but I don't have to shoot down, I don't have the meat shoot down all 15. I got to pick a couple of them. Which ones do I shoot down? One of these devices alone to help shoot down these things, it's a building day, but one of these devices alone costs $850 million. I mean, just, does that just blow your mind? Like one of these devices, $850 million, and these things are like everywhere. Like, you know, every like major developing country has got one of these things to kind of help protect itself, or they buy it from people who have built it that they can have in their own kind of country. And my wife and I, my comment that my wife and I were making together was like, imagine what we could do better with that money. If we all just agreed, hey, listen, how about this deal? I promise we won't nuke you. You promise you won't nuke us. And then we'll take that money and we'll spend it on something else. Are we cool? And you guys have to agree too, and you have to agree as well, and you guys have to agree. If we all agree, now, you know, like, you know, come on, like, you know, pinky, pinky promise. We're going to agree not to nuke each other. Because if we can do that, there are literally billions of dollars that we could spend in our country on something else. That would be awesome. Like, sincerely, like, I can think of much better things with billions of dollars than to build missile technology that we hopefully never have to use. But that's how committed we are as a people to potentially destroy each other. How does the resurrection have any bearing on that issue? Because that issue, if you trace it down its tree, you get down to the root of the problem, the root is not national or international, the root is personal. The root comes to the reality of what's in your and my heart and the daily reality of how we interact with each other. We have problems with each other. We don't want to forgive each other. We don't want to ask for forgiveness from each other. We want to hold on to bitterness. We want to dial into that sense of injustice and wrong that's been committed to us. And I won't forgive unless you've done enough things that show me that you're serious about that you feel bad for what you've done. But this is not how God has called us to think. For those of us who are Christians, having the cross and the empty tomb define our relational ideas and interactions changes everything. So let me just read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is Paul, in this context, writing to this church in Corinth, a city very similar to Miami, the city of Corinth. In the middle of this, he says in verse 14 and following, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we, for new Christians, regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old 
passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in God, Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For those of you not familiar with this text or knowing what's going on, let me explain it to you. The author, Paul, is talking to a bunch of Christians like here this morning. He says, guys, because of what Christ has accomplished, we now think of the world differently. We don't regard people according to the flesh. In other words, we don't see people based upon what they look like, what they've done to me or to others, how much they own, how much education they have. We don't think of people that way, number one. Number two, we are aware that there's a problem in the world that's affected not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other. And we know what is needed in that is reconciliation. To reconciliate means to reconcile, to put back together, to take two wrongs and to make it a right again, to make it back again. It's to take Humpty Dumpty, it's fallen off the wall, and put it back together so that it is one unified relationship. But the reality of how we can do this as a people is because we see how God reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This term ministry means service, this idea that we have this act, this opportunity Friends, I'm not asking you to ignore the hurt that others have caused you. And I am aware that that hurt ranges from mild infraction to deep, lifelong, relationship-altering experience. I'm not trying to be pastorally insensitive to those sitting in some very difficult circumstances right now. What I'm trying to do is connect you to the fountain of hope that says, if you and I, who have been in even greater debt against God, have been reconciled to him through the sacrifice of his son, we have the prospect and possibility of being reconciled to each other. It might not restore the trust perfectly, but it can restore the relationship, hopefully, that we can have that there is a ministry that God entrusts to us. And that's why he says he is making his appeal through us. This is why it's so important for those of us who are Christians to live in that reality. The fourth fountain of hope that we find, the fourth reason we find this fountain of hope to be providing. Number four, the resurrection gives us hope that our sin doesn't define us. Our sin doesn't define us. Why is this significant? Because some of you believe what you have done is more identifiable to who you are than how you look, where you have been, or who you are related to. In fact, this can be a problem even for some Christians who, even after they gave their life to Christ, in the reality of the struggle against sin, have done some things that they're so embarrassed by, they wonder, 
if God has changed his mind on loving them and forgiving them and they've lost their salvation, of which you cannot do. Others of you perhaps are not that far in your relationship with God. You think what you have done actually is a small print on the Bible that you don't know where it's at, but it must be in there, which is God loves people. He just doesn't love you. Because what you have done is so significant that not only do you not want others to know about it, you're not sure God who does know about it would accept you. And what we find in the resurrection is that it gives us hope that our sin does not define us. The reality is Easter is fun, but it comes and goes. Hope is nice, but it eventually gets crowded out with life. We regress back into our caves of discouragement, doubt, and despair. If you really knew me, Eric, you would know why I do not have hope. Paul, the same author, writing to a different church in the city of Rome, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, says the following, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now the context of this verse, going back into chapter seven, is that Paul, who himself is a Christian, feels like, hey, I have done some things I wish I was not doing. And I've not done some things I know I ought to be doing. And he says at the very end of Romans chapter seven, who will set me free from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. And he says, therefore, in chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you recognize this? Your sin does not define you if your faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Otherwise, if your faith is not in Christ, your sin defines you now and it damns you for eternity. Because sin is not just your inability to love up to your standards or somebody else's. Your expectations are bills. Your sin is an act of rebellion against God, of which there is an eternal consequence to that reality. But that's what's so hopeful in Romans chapter 8 is he says, those who are in Christ have life. That the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That God's spirit dwells inside of every child of God who has given their life to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Fifth and final, the resurrection gives us hope for tomorrow and for eternity. I don't know about you, but I am... I want to say the word curious, but it feels insensitive. I'm concerned. Where is this thing in Ukraine going? Does it feel odd to you that there are two major countries at war? That one is bombing the other? having mass casualties, undeniable, though so many countries are kind of like sheepish to say it, 
war crimes, killing innocent civilians, women and children who are not in any way engaged in war. And to kind of like watch as the world sort of stands by, and no one really wants to get involved except like, hey, we promise to give you money, or we promise to give you ammunition, or we promise to give you some technology, or we promise to like withhold economic opportunities from them, but we're not really going to do anything right now. It kind of seems like your thing, and it, it feels awkward, doesn't it? It feels like you're watching a school bully beat up a younger child, and you're like, you should stop that. And then you're like giving like tips, fighting tips to the person being beat up. Hey, hey, duck. I mean, honestly, will this thing go? Will it spread? Finland and Sweden are like, yo, we want in on NATO. We want in on European Union. Now, immediately. I mean, are we looking at the, on the eve of World War III? Everyone's wondering what China is thinking. China has their own interest in Taiwan, like Russia has their interest in Ukraine. And you can bet China seems like they're maybe taking notes. Like, how does the world respond if you overtake a neighboring province that you claim is yours? There's got to be some level of curiosity and interest Concern and terror as the world records death of thousands and thousands of people. What would you say to them? Hope it works out for you? What do you tell your friends? Not in Ukraine, not about Ukraine, but just about their day. How do you have hope even for today, let alone tomorrow, let alone for eternity? You can offer only so many platitudes. I've spoken to many of my non-Christian friends who sweetly and meaningfully try to say something that offers condolence. The common phrase we hear today is, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. I don't even know what that phrase means. And I'm not trying to be cheeky about it. Just channeling my inner British person there. Our thoughts are with you. Like, I, I need something more than thoughts. Prayers. Okay, that sounds promising. What are you saying and who are you saying it to? How do you have any confidence that person's listening and can do anything about it? So the real question is, is hope just like happiness on steroids? What is hope? And why is it so significantly tied to an event 2,000 years ago at a place that most people in this room have never been to themselves? This is a significant question and worth answering. Peter has an answer for us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to become Christian, to a living hope. How did he do this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's no denying it. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The world's been watching as endless amounts of Ukrainian refugees have crossed the borders in neighboring countries as refugees because they have been forced out of their towns for fear of death. First Peter is written to the exact type of circumstance, though for differing reason. Christians were forced out of their towns, lost their jobs, removed from their families, living in different parts of the country than they had ever lived in before, not because some other country had bombed them as a people group, but because they were Christians, and because they were Christians, they were going through tremendous persecution. And Peter says, not denying the reality of the difficulty they live in, he says, you, though perhaps for a time, are going through various trials, God is using that in your life to produce something lasting and eternal. And all of this, he says, back in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ presents evidence that demands explanation from historians and scientists. It simply cannot be dismissed. The significant reality of what it means to see a resurrected Savior is to see the possibility and even now the promise of hope. Where is peace found, my friends? Where do you find it? Where do others recommend you find it? Various Western proposals, individual freedom, more class equality, more economic prosperity, or technologically acquired peace and justice, more police reform, more political reorientation. These are all hopes that are not rooted in the empirical realm. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, however, is the powerful evidence from the empirical realm, while still requiring faith, includes a highly reasonable, rational hope that there is a God who knows you exist and has provided for you, and the question is, will you receive that provision? Listen to these last words from Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah said thousands of years ago, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilling that prophecy, would later say himself in his life in John chapter seven, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, my hope today is that you would find your thirst finally and forever satisfied. Finally quenched. Because you would be fed from the spring of hope that's tied to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Savior. If that's not where your hope is, I challenge you to consider where you place your hope instead and to turn to the offer that God gives, the only offer that God gives to have peace with him. And a, an offer that I would love to talk with you about, that any of our pastors here would love to talk about, perhaps even some of the people who brought you would love to talk to you about, the hope that's in Christ. That is how we can find a happy Easter Sunday. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.